Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. It's been a busy summer with new laws going into place that ban abortion in Idaho and multiple lawsuits challenging those statutes. All this while the general election looms. We'll give you the latest. I'm Melissa Davlin. The 51st season of Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to the new season of Idaho Reports. This week, Senator Melissa Wintrow and House Majority Caucus Chair Megan Blanksma sit down with producer Ruth Brown to discuss this week's Idaho Supreme Court oral arguments over three separate lawsuits concerning abortion bans and the civil enforcement mechanism that went into place this past summer. But first, Election Day is just a month away. And this past week, Idaho Public Television hosted the first two debates of four we're airing this election cycle. First, let's take a quick look at the U.S. Senate debate with Democrat David Roth, Independent Scott Cleveland, and incumbent Senator Mike Crapo, who discussed spending, the PACT Act, extremism, and so much more. And I believe that as a United States Senator, you have to dig your heels in. You have the power of the purse, and that, and that power should be wielded. Uh, for example, right now, our southern border is being invaded on a daily basis. It is a violation of the oath of office of our members of Congress as well as our president. And that deliberate invasion can only be stopped with uh, the people that have the backbone to do it. You'll notice that every six months they want to raise the debt ceiling in this country. If I were a sitting United States senator, I would say, I'm not talking to you about money until that border is closed to my satisfaction. I voted against it for the very reasons I've been attacked by Mr. Cleveland. That is, it put $380 billion of new spending potential, a big hole, a slush fund hole, in the budget to allow the Democrats to spend another $380 billion. Chuck Schumer has been consistent on this, whether it's the PACT Act or other acts that have been pushed through. When he sees one that has Republican support, he adds a boatload of new spending to it and puts Republicans in the position of voting no on things they support or authorizing hundreds of billions of dollars of new spending. I didn't do it because that's the strategy Chuck Schumer was pushing. And I will say, as far as, ref, as veterans, in the, PAC, in the PACT Act, one of the lead pieces of it was my bill. I think it's very important that as a senator, as a statesman, we push back at every opportunity and we look at ways to protect our citizens. And then beyond that, I think that we need to look at how does extremism grow in the first place. One of the main ways that extremism grows is because people are very unhappy. Here in Idaho, they've been living under Republican supermajority for over 30 years. Nearly half of them can't afford to make ends meet. They're very unhappy. We need to make investments in our communities and in our state to try to improve those situations and sort of starve out extremism so that they don't have that fertile bed for it to lie in. Joining me today to discuss those debates are Dr. Stephanie Witt from Boise State University School of Public Service and Bart Davis, former U.S. Attorney for Idaho and former Senate Majority Leader. Dr. Witt, I want to start with you. It, no secret that Idaho is a deep red state mm -hmm. and this is a, a pretty safe election for incumbent 
Senator Crapo, it would be a tough race for a Democrat or a conservative independent. But let's talk about the importance of these challenges, especially when it comes to an incumbent who has consistently held office since the 80s. Uh, how do their challenges change the dynamic of the conversations that, that Senator Crapo might be having on, on the election trail? Well, I'd point out first that he's one of the few statewide candidates who've been willing to participate in a debate. And so what the voters get from that is to hear some alternative views on policy issues, to hear some alternative things to talk about that perhaps aren't on the top of Senator Crapo's to-do list. And so it does serve to introduce people to some other ideas. Last time a Democrat won statewide office was 2002. It's very unlikely that anything is going to change in this election. You may see a little more, a little higher percentage uh, of Democrat uh, voting in the state. We'll see that that's why we have the election to see who wins. But I think he's very safe. The familiarity of his name, uh, the powers of incumbency, you know, he's got a really big war chest that he can fund TV ads and so on. So I think he's going to run real strong through the end. He's under no, uh, it, it's unlikely that he's going to have a tough race. But you, you have a candidate who is a small business owner, mm -hmm. you know, an owner of an uh, investment firm in Eagle with Scott mm -hmm. Cleveland. And then you have Democrat David Roth, who has extensive experience with housing issues, has worked with low-income Idahoans struggling with food insecurity through his work with the Idaho Falls Food Bank. Those are, you know, both of them bring to the table issues that maybe a lot of politicians didn't necessarily have personal experience with, especially during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I think we saw that dynamic during the debate on, on that aired on Tuesday. Yeah, I, it, to me, Roth was trying to um, get those pocketbook issues back on the, um, on the agenda. Now, in one sense, Senator Crapo is always talking about the pocketbook issues because he, he often is worried about the budget and adding to the deficit and so on, which is a way of understanding a pocketbook issue. But I think Roth was coming more strongly with, you know, the inflation is hurting people. Uh, they need some help. They, they need a change. Now, if that's going to result in a change in the office holder, I seriously doubt. Yeah. You served in the Idaho State Senate for almost 20 years, 19 years, before moving on to the U.S. Attorney's Office. Um, can you talk about the dynamic when it comes to deciding how you're going to vote on legislation that you have very mixed feelings about? That was a criticism that Senator Crapo received a lot this week, that he voted no on the CHIPS Act, that he voted no on the PACT Act, that he voted no on legislation where he supported the concept but not the spending. How did you make that calculation when you were in the Senate? Well, in Idaho, uh, we have to, all legislation has to be on a single subject. And so we, we can't do in Idaho what Senator Crapo described was uh, done to him and others. Uh, uh, in the U.S. Senate. But it is still true that many times a bill would come up and there was a lot in the bill I liked. I was 60 percent I and 40 percent nay or just the reverse. Um, or there were aspects of it that hit the primary policy target but there was some some poison pill language in there that I, I just felt uncomfortable with. And, and regardless of who it is uh, in, in those moments, 
Um, th those are tough decisions, and you sit on the floor sometimes, and the first person debates, and you, you know that makes sense, and you're going to vote aye. Then the next person debates, and you think, you know, on second thought, maybe I'm a nay. Uh, and you go back and forth on it. These are hard issues, and, and sometimes they require hard votes. And there are often times that I, had go, I would go home at the end of a session, and I wasn't sure if I cast the right vote on a few bills. As time went by, I became more confident. But, but that's, uh, I, th I thought Senator Crapo appropriately described the difficulty of some decisions you have to make. Well, this week, we also saw a debate between candidates for Attorney General, Republican Raul Labrador, and Democrat Tom Arkush. Let's take a look. When you have a client, and initially you give them an opinion, and before you take them into litigation, you sit down and visit with them. I've had 44 years of doing that. I have never had a complaint about a frivolous defense or a frivolous lawsuit. I think a lot of what might be going on is that we never get to the middle. The opinion is written and the state goes straight to litigation. My record is really clear. I am a strong conservative advocate for the values of Idaho. I am a strong conservative advocate for the people of Idaho, and I will defend them in the courts. I will defend them when I represent them as attorney general, and that's why I overwhelmingly won in the primary, uh, because the people of Idaho were looking for a new direction in that office. He's going to stand up and tell the legislators that what you're doing is wrong and what you're doing is unconstitutional. My job to work with the legislators is to help them draft it in a way that can be defended in the courts. So you don't have to file frivolous suits. You don't have to file any lawsuits that we're going to lose. I would like to keep my oath, and the, and the, the top tier of the oath is the Constitution of the United States. How's that worked out so far? When, when the legislature decides to pass a blatantly unconstitutional amendment and then spend the Constitutional Defense Fund to defend it, it's never, it, it, it just costs us money. Dr. Witt, you mentioned earlier that this is, Idaho is a tough hill to climb for Democrats seeking statewide office. In this race, Tom Arkush has received endorsements from high-profile Republicans, including former Secretary of State Ben Yasursa, former Republican Attorney General um, and Idaho Supreme Court Chief Justice Jim Jones. Um, that, how much of that dynamic is gonna play into that final vote tally on November 8th? Well, of course, it's hard to tell in advance if that will sway uh, people who maybe are, identify as Republicans or are registered Republicans to vote for a Democrat. I don't know. I would expect to see some number of, of, of uh, if there are still moderate Republicans, you know, who want to vote for uh, Arkush as opposed to Labrador. Um, I noticed that Labrador did a, Mr. Labrador did a wonderful job of, of continually reminding people that uh, Mr. Arkush had his people that were helping him that were uh, once Republican office holders. So I think what we're seeing there is a little evidence of, you know, the Republican majority becoming so large that it's kind of split off into factions. And, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Labrador represents, I think, a further right or uh, maybe a slightly different take on some of those conservative issues than uh, Jim Jones and, and the people that, um, are standing with Tom Arkush. 
And that split, that divide in the Republican Party is certainly nothing new. We've seen that for many years right. in Idaho. I wanted to get your take on their interpretations of the Attorney General's job as it relates to the Idaho legislature, because both of them talked about different approaches to defending Idaho's laws and potentially even trying to keep lawmakers out of trouble by working with them to stop them from preventing what they think is unconstitutional legislation. What are your thoughts on their two different takes? Well, I am an attorney, and, uh, and I have practiced law a few years shy of, uh, of Tom, uh, but it's certainly north of, of 40 years. Um, and, and the Idaho legislature, uh, does not speak with one voice, uh, uh, and, and frankly, uh, within each party, uh, there are differing points of view. And then the House and the Senate see the world uh, quite a bit different on any given bill. So being able to speak to one or two or a small handful of legislators doesn't necessarily mean you're speaking or working with the entire legislature. Um, but the, the role of the Attorney General uh, is not to set the public policy of the state of Idaho. That's the legislature's job. The one thing that the Idaho legislature, I think, is missing is a, a legal guiding hand as they are crafting legislation. When I want to write a bill and I go to our legislative services office, we have some remarkable legal professionals there that help us craft the bills, but they're prohibited from telling you how the courts are going to receive this legislation. They're supposed to wordsmith it, your ideas for you. But having a legal, uh, uh, having an attorney's office in there that can guide prior to asking the Attorney General's office uh, for a legal opinion, I think could be helpful to the state of Idaho. Uh, whether they'll do that or not, I guess only time will tell. But, but the legis once the legislature is done, then I believe it's the responsibility of the Attorney General's office to find the constitutional seams of the bill. And, and the edges of it. And, I, and I, frankly, I learned that from this Attorney General. Uh, I, was, I, I was not always happy with every opinion we got from the Attorney General's office. But it wasn't his job to tell me what I wanted to hear, which is true for a good lawyer. That lawyer's job is to tell their client what they need to hear. And so, uh, but once we're done, then it's the job of the lawyer to go and fight for the client within the parameters of what, the, what they should be doing. Former U.S. Attorney for Idaho, Bart Davis, Dr. Stephanie Witt, thank you so much for joining us this week. If you missed any of our debates, you can watch them online at idahoptv.org debates. 
during a Tuesday meeting at the White House of the Task Force on Reproductive Health Care Access. U.S. Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona said his department is issuing a reminder to schools that Title IX protects students from sex-based discrimination based on pregnancy, termination of pregnancy, or any related conditions. During his remarks, President Biden specifically referenced a memo that the University of Idaho sent to staff members in September, advising them not to promote or make referrals for abortion or birth control, lest they run afoul of the No Public Funds for Abortion Act, which the legislature passed in 2021. Officials at the University of Idaho said it should stop providing contraception, as was mentioned by the vice president. In fact, they told university staff that they could get in trouble just for talking or telling students about birth, where they get birth control. Folks, uh, what century are we in? I mean, how, what are we doing? I respect everyone's view on this, personal decisions they make, but my Lord, we're talking about contraception here. It shouldn't be that controversial. And, but that's, this is what it looks like when you start to take away the right of privacy. On Wednesday, University of Idaho President Scott Green and Provost Tori Lawrence sent a follow-up to employees, clarifying that no university policies had changed and faculty could still lead discussions about abortion as it relates to their curriculum. They also reiterated that the university couldn't predict how the state would enforce the No Public Funds for Abortion Act. Idaho Reports discussed that original memo from the University of Idaho in depth last week on the Idaho Reports podcast with former Idaho Supreme Court Chief Justice and Attorney General Jim Jones, who also explains how the law could potentially affect other state employees depending on how prosecutors interpret it. Full disclosure, Idaho Public Television is a state agency. You can find that conversation with Jones at IdahoPTV.org slash Idaho Reports or on your favorite podcast player and while you're there be sure to subscribe. On Thursday, the Idaho Supreme Court heard oral arguments on three separate lawsuits concerning abortion criminalization in Idaho code, all of which went into place this past summer. One is a total abortion ban with exceptions for rape, incest, and the life of the mother. Another bans abortions after a detectable fetal heartbeat. And the third law allows relatives of the fetus to sue healthcare providers who performed the abortion. Arguments focused on a right to privacy and whether the legislature considered the health of the mother. I understand the state to articulate its interest in preserving all preborn life that may become compelling at some point in the pregnancy, but it's not compelling early in um, early in the in the pregnancy. It's simply not a right that the laws will or an interest that the law is willing to protect in derogation of a woman's right that early in the pregnancy. Liability is not a great line. It's, there's no principled basis for choosing that line on or, over, over any other. I mean, you're right. Once you acknowledge that that fetus is a being and it's indisputably human, you're dealing with a human being from the beginning to the end. Producer Ruth Brown sat down with Senator Melissa Wintrow and House Majority Caucus Chair Megan Blanksma to discuss the hearing. Arguments before the Supreme Court uh, today revolved around the trigger law, and that includes uh, punishments for doctors. Um, if they conduct an illegal uh, abortion, it would be punishable by a felony, um, possible prison time. Representative Blanksma, you co-sponsored this legislation in 2022. 
Did you expect to see the types of legal arguments that uh, we saw today around the right to privacy? I think some of them were inevitable. I think that any time you try to craft a piece of legislation like this that potentially has a lot of moving parts, that you're going to have a lot of people looking at it from different perspectives. And I think when we, honestly, when this piece was crafted, the whole concept, the driving concept was the same um, as I believe most Idahoans believe that elective abortions shouldn't be allowed to be a method of birth control. And this was an effort to make sure that, that we could maintain those values should the Supreme Court decision um, make that possible. Um, now that it's become possible, there have, people have really dug into the code and there are some differences of what we thought we were writing at the time versus um, what other people are seeing in the language. Okay, Representative Wintrow, you opposed the legislation. You were there today in court. Um, what was your takeaway from this morning's arguments? I think the biggest takeaway I heard that I've actually heard on a pretty daily basis from constituents is that the state is on record and was in committee as well that a woman's life doesn't really matter and that the value of the potential life of an embryo or a fetus means much more than a woman lying on a gurney. I think that was very clear and it was repeated several times. In discussions around the Heartbeat Act, the court had questions around the civil enforcement issues, uh, particularly those that allow family members of a potential rapist, uh, should the pregnancy be a result of rape, um, being allowed to sue. That came up in court. The legislature's attorney uh, argued those family, whether those family members should have a stake uh, in that pregnancy, um, how would you infra I guess, how would you frame the intent of that legislation? Well, I was not a sponsor of that legislation, of the heartbeat legislation, first of all. And second of all, I would reject the, the statements by the Democrats that we don't care about women's lives. We, we absolutely do, 100%. I think that it's loaded language, and I think it's unfair if we're gonna have a civil discussion to, tr to try to go into name calling when we're trying to discuss a piece of legislation. With regard to the heartbeat bill, there's also some question as to which law supersedes. From my understanding, my reading, and my discussion with the attorneys is that the trigger bill would supersede the heartbeat bill, which would then address that um, condition with regard to rape or incest. That was a discussion the Supreme Court had today, and I think that's something that uh, they will likely still hammer out. Um, looking back on the heartbeat bill, is there anything, any language that you would have, I guess, would have changed or? <laughs> well, it, it's difficult. You hate to, um, the, I was not the author of the, the, right. either of the heartbeat bills, right? So we've had two and sandwiched in between was, was the trigger bill, which was the one that I carried on the House floor. And so it's difficult for me to claim intention on certain language when I wasn't key to writing either of those. Um, today's discussion focused heavily on bodily autonomy and right to privacy. On the House floor and the Senate floor, the focus is almost always on um, when life begins and on pregnant women. There's a real divide there. As someone who covered courts for 10 years and covers the legislature as well, um, we'll start with you, Senator Wintra. What impact does that divide between maybe how the courts approaches things and the legislature approaches things? Um, what impact does that have on the, the fallout of the legislation? Well, I think first I did want to acknowledge what uh, Representative Blankman said is that um, I think I'm being pretty civil and I think the 
I'm not name calling either. The, the language of the legislation does not incorporate the health of the mother. Only the, I guess, the lethality piece. And, and even as the Department of Justice intervened, I should say, on this latest case, um, the state is now, the legislature's fighting it because of the health of the mother. So I'm not suggesting name calling there, I'm, I'm just stating clearly the truth. It is not in the legislation. And uh, I don't think the Republican Party platform also uh, uh, I think they echo that uh, in some of their descriptions and definitions about when life begins, and that's a fertilization. And in fact, the platform states that it would be murder if anybody interfered at any point along the way uh, after fertilization. So I think it's pretty clear what is being valued over the other. And that was said repeatedly. The justices asked several times and the state repeated that the, uh, the life, and the, in their words, of the unborn was more important than the life of the mother. That was said. Representative Linksma. Well, I, I think that again, we're, we're trying, I'm trying my best to not use charged language because I think that's where this is getting out of hand. Any discussion on abortion, there's certain words that you can use that are trigger words, um, words that, that people feel that have more value than others, and I'm really trying to avoid, avoid those in the interest of actually having a discussion about what the law says. The law does address the health of the mother. There are certain conditions where long-term could cause you know, death, but certainly health considerations are taking up front. Those are some of the considerations that they're talking about in the courts now, is at what point? And so I think that's been the long-term discussion in the United States. At what point do you want to value the life of, of an unborn child? And at what point do you value the, the life of the woman carrying the child? And some type of balance has to be made. And I think that's where, particularly within the trigger bill, we tried to find that balance. Because if you look as far as reproductive rights, which is, is often the, the key phrase that people have been using, you look at choice of the woman, well, choices were made. I would argue that um, if a woman chooses to get pregnant, a choice was made. I don't think we need to have biology class to figure out how that happens, but I can also say that those three exceptions that are in Idaho code specifically address when the choice is taken away from the woman. Very specifically address when the choice is taken away from a woman. Choices are removed if a woman is raped, choices are removed in cases of incest, and choices are removed when you are could potentially die because of a pregnancy. And that's the reason for those exceptions. And, and I think that Pete, that goes unrecognized as to the importance of those. I, yeah, I, I appreciate the representative saying that, but I don't think there are exceptions. They're, they're allowed an affirmative defense, which means you're guilty till proven innocent. And that was a major uh, discussion point of the case today, is that there is no other place that it appears, justices were asking that again and again. Um, I, I do kind of, in, I think it's interesting the language that the representative is using about choice. Um, number one, um, I think when we, the justices even, you know, kind of drew our attention to this question, uh, in the case of rape and incest, it requires a police report. And as I've said on the Senate floor, twice at least, uh, especially in my experience working with victims and survivors of sexual and domestic violence, you can't get a police report. It is protected by law. Okay, uh, and I would like to interrupt because when we've got it, cases of rape, I, I'm not, if you just listen to what I'm trying to say for just a minute, uh, what I'm saying is rape and incest, those are felonies. 
those are serious felonies. And at some point in time, we need to address how those are reported. And so in a way, I'm agreeing with you in that those, those are serious conditions. And, and to, to yeah. walk past that and, and make the inference that it's just too difficult to report, I think we have a different situation mm -hmm. there. Rather than to argue about the reporting condition, yeah. I think we really need to focus on those are felonies. And maybe we mm -hmm. need to be focusing on how those should be reported or ways mm -hmm. to, to make the reporting you know, more reasonable for folks that, that need to do the reporting. Well, I think you're acknowledging the fact that, um, I hope at least, that uh, most people don't report a sexual assault or incest in particular because think about uh, the weight uh, upon somebody, especially a minor, if a relative has raped you. Who do you go to? Who do you talk to? Uh, you know, it's an impossible situation. We are gonna have to leave it there. Thank you for your time, ladies. I appreciate it. Thank you. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.